Hello, friend. Thanks so much for downloading this podcast. And with all my heart, I hope you hear something that edifies, encourages, equip, enlightens, and then engages you in the marketplace of ideas. But before you go and before you listen, I want to take a quick moment and explain to you this month's truth tool. The book is called I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith. You know, it's paramount as followers of Christ that we not only know what we believe, but why we believe it. So questions like heaven and hell, angels, the Trinity, all of these are foundational issues for believing Christians. But sometimes we don't fully understand what it is we believe about Christianity. So the book, I Believe, A Concise Guide to the Essentials of the Christian Faith is just that. It's concise And it's a wonderful guide to explain to you the cornerstones of who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. It's yours for a gift of any amount because In the Market with Janet Parshall is a listener-supported broadcast. We stay on the air because you pray and give. So if you'd like this month's Truth Rule, just call 877-JANET-58. Ask for a copy of I Believe. That's 877-JANET-58. Or you can go online to InTheMarketWithJanetParshall.org. Scroll to the bottom of the page. There's the cover of the book. If a gift of any amount, we'll send it to you as our way of saying thank you. While you're on that website, you might want to take a moment, scroll down just a little bit farther, and there's a description of what it means to be a partial partner. These are people who give at a level of their own choosing, and they give every month. They get the truth tool if they ask for it every single month, and they'll also get a newsletter, only people that do, that includes an audio portion that only goes to my partial partners. So if you want to be a partial partner or you're just interested in giving one time to get a copy of I Believe, 877-JANET-58 is the route to go, 877-JANET-58, or online at inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. I Believe, a great book for you to put in your backpack as you continue your Pilgrim's Progress. Now, Please enjoy the podcast. Here are some of the news headlines we're watching. By the time the conference was over, the president won a pledge. So Americans worshiping government over God. An extremely next... rare safety move by a nation. 17 years the Palestinians and Israelis negotiated. Friends, welcome to In the Market with Janet Parshall. Happy Thursday to you. Let me start where we've been starting for most of the 118 days that have passed since October 7th, the war on Israel. And we're going to go to our friends again at CBN News. This time, Julie Stahl gives us an update with a particular focus on UNRWA, that UN humanitarian group that apparently decided it would participate in the terrorist attack on the 7th. Have a listen. Israeli soldiers in Khan Yunus discovered weapons hidden inside bags belonging to UNRWA as they destroyed an Islamic Jihad workshop for building weapons. Inside the bags were Kalashnikov rifles and hand grenades. This discovery adding more evidence of UNRWA's relationship with terror groups. A number of countries temporarily stopped aid to the organization after Israel presented evidence that some 1,200 UNRWA workers are affiliated with terror groups in Gaza and that 12 UNRWA UNRWA workers participated in the Hamas massacre on October 7th. UNRWA is totally infiltrated with Hamas. It has been in the service of Hamas, in its schools, and in many other things. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu met with a delegation of UN ambassadors who came to see for themselves the evidence of the attack on Israel. I say this with great regret because we hope that there would be uh, an objective and constructive body to offer aid. We need such a a body today in Gaza. The UNRWA is not that body. 
it has to be replaced by some organization or organizations that will do that job. Meanwhile, the U.S. is keeping up the push for a Palestinian state as a solution to the conflict ahead of Secretary of State Blinken's visit to Israel this week. We are actively pursuing the establishment of an independent Palestinian state with real security guarantees for Israel because we do believe that is the best way to bring about lasting peace and security for Israel, for Palestinians and for the region. That principle was enshrined in the Oslo Accords between Israel and the Palestine Liberation Organization 30 years ago, but it's a non-starter for Israel today. Legal analyst Maurice Hirsch says the accords never had a chance because the Palestinians didn't consider them peace agreements. The PLO never gave up on what it said was its 10-point plan. This was a plan that it adopted already in the 1970s that says we will take any territory given to us and then use that territory as a basis to continue attacking Israel and to bring about its ultimate demise. Meanwhile, National Security Council spokesman John Kirby told the Jewish Federation that hostage negotiations are going in the right direction as both sides consider a proposal for an extended ceasefire and phased return of the hostages. Julie Stahl, CBN News, Jerusalem. So we need to keep praying for that situation because it looks like it is far from over. We're going to be talking with Dr. Homo Shariat in a few moments, and we're going to be talking about how Iran is using what's happening in Israel for its own purposes. He'll go deeper into this. But now, let me talk a little bit about what we're seeing in terms of China. The United States is now saying it disrupted a China cyber threat, but warns that hackers could still wreak havoc for Americans. CBS News files this report. China has shown it will make us pay. FBI Director Christopher Wray delivered this warning on Capitol Hill. China's hackers are positioning on American infrastructure in preparation to wreak havoc and cause real-world harm to American citizens. Cautioning Chinese hackers are aiming to infiltrate the nation's pipelines, water treatment plants, transportation system, and even the U.S. power grid. Imagine not one pipeline, but many pipelines disrupted. Uh, telecommunications going down so people can't use their cell phone. People start getting sick from polluted water. Trains get derailed. This is truly an everything, everywhere, all at once scenario. And it's one where the Chinese government believes that it will likely crush American will for the U.S. to defend Taiwan in the event of a major conflict there. This week, the FBI announced a takedown of Volt Typhoon, a Chinese-backed hacking operation enabling malicious actors to spy on U.S. critical infrastructure. Accessed through privately owned office and home internet routers, federal law enforcement disabled the hackers, obtaining court orders to delete the malware off hundreds of infected devices. They target our freedoms, reaching inside our borders across America to silence coerce and threaten some of our citizens and residents. So we'll keep an eye on that, as we always do. Bill Gertz will be joining us in a few days to give us even more insight into what the communist regime is doing. Closer to home, on Tuesday, six pro-life Christians were charged with violating the FACE Act for peacefully protesting outside of an abortion clinic in Nashville, Tennessee. What were they doing? Singing hymns and praying for people as they went in. Now, the FACE Act, or the Freedom of Access to Clinic Entrances Act, prohibits, and I quote, violent, threatening, 
damaging and obstructive conduct intended to injure, intimidate, or interfere with the right to seek, obtain, or provide reproductive health services. If you've seen the video, and it's out there, believe me, on all the social platforms, these people were praying, they were quietly singing hymns, and they were gently talking to people who came to the clinic. Nothing could be farther than the language, both the letter and the spirit of the FACE Act. But this is an election year. And now it's imperative that the one party that thinks abortion is a winnable item on the ballot this year is going to make, I'm sorry, an example of these people. And what's particularly problematic is that if you look at what these six pro-lifers could face, it's absolutely unbelievable. They could face up to 10 and a half years in prison. You heard me right, 10 and a half years in prison. They also, by the way, could face fines of up to $260,000. And because of the FACE Act charge, they could also see an additional year in prison and an additional $10,000 fine. It is reprehensible, it is unconscionable, and it's political. So we need to be praying for the sentencing, which now will not happen until July, that somehow these people won't become punished by a weaponized government that will do anything possible to garner votes. And by the way, if you're counting all of the criminal acts against pro-life centers that have been taking place just before Dobbs and since Dobbs, not a single prosecution. Not a single prosecution. We have a brand new truth tool. It's called Connecting the Dots. It's a new month, new truth tool. It'll help you figure out if you think you're just walking in circles and you don't know what God's plan is for your life. He's still working. And this book will help you connect the dots. To get your copy, 877 877- Janet, 58, back after this. What if those times you felt like you were walking in circles were really God's way of leading you to his plan for your life? That's why I've chosen Connecting the Dots as this month's truth tool. Learn how to make the most of the lessons you're learning now. Ask for your copy of Connecting the Dots when you give a gift of any amount to In the Market. Call 877-JANET-58. That's 877-JANET-58. Or go to inthemarketwithjanetpartial.org. So we've said before that Israel is involved in a proxy war with Iran. We certainly know the linkage between Iran and Hezbollah. Hezbollah, of course, located north of Israel in Lebanon. We see what's happening in Gaza. We are also watching what's happening with the Houthis. We're also paying attention to what's happening on the Syrian border as well. So here's what we know. U.S. retaliatory attacks against Iran-backed militants will be a, quote, campaign. That's a word the government is using that could last, their word, weeks. The targets are expected to include Iranian targets outside of Iran, and the campaign will involve both strikes and cyber operations. Tehran has warned it would respond decisively to any attack on its territory or interests after President Joe Biden said he had decided how to retaliate for the drone strikes on a base in Jordan that killed three American service members. That is exactly why I've been saying Paul's admonition to Timothy applies here. We need to be praying for those in authority. Shakespeare said, heavy is the head that wears the crown. Bottom line is, when you're the commander-in-chief, you have to make some pretty important decisions, and a decision on how to, quote, retaliate is one of them. 
I am so very grateful that we can look at the headlines of the day through the lens of Scripture. And one of the ways we can do that is by talking to people who are absolutely grounded in the Word of God and have a bibliocentric worldview. One of those people is Dr. Hamo Shariat, who's the founder of Iran Alive Ministries, which uses satellite TV to reach the millions of lost and broken people in Iran and the rest of the Middle East. They broadcast the gospel 24-7 from their studio in Dallas to Iran in the Middle East. And Dr. Shariat firmly believes that Iran will be the first Islamic nation that turns to Christ. He is the author of Iran's Great Awakening, which is the number one source of information about what is happening in Iran today and how the Bible prophecies align with current events. Hormoz recently wrote a piece entitled, Why Did Iran Back the Attack on U.S. Military in Jordan? And that's where we're going to start our conversation. Hermos, is the warmest of welcomes. I'm so thrilled that you're here. And I love the way we can talk about the gospel. But, of course, being born in Iran and coming to the United States, you came from an Islamic family, from a Muslim family. You understand very much what it's like in that nation. By the way, I did a little research last night on the Persian Empire. The Persian Empire at one point in time had 50 million people. And at that stage in world history... It had half the world's population, and its boundaries were much more expansive than I had thought originally. So it's fascinating to see that the role that Iran has played in the past, in the present, and you and I both believe will play in the future as well. So what led you to write this piece about the drone strike on the U.S. base in Jordan? Well, thank you, Janet, for allowing me to share. You know, as you mentioned, there are events happening in the Middle East, uh, and they're not random. You know, you look at the Bible, and all these events are aligned with the prophecies in the Bible. It's not that we are at the end times, I don't believe that, but we are moving in that direction. Like uh, the tension between Iran and Israel, we see that in the Bible, that eventually Iran and Israel will be in war. But at the same time, we see in the Bible that Iran will come to Christ and come to faith. And this tension between Iran and Israel, we have to understand, it is uh, uh, the root is spiritual, first of mm. all. Mm. And number two, because the enemy doesn't want those prophecies to happen, or at least want to, uh, he wants them to be delayed. Now, this attack on Jordan, it's a part of a bigger uh, uh, plan for the Iranian government. They are doing this every week. You hear that they're attacking. They attacked uh, Pakistan last week, Iraq, Syria, and they're causing some trouble. And the question is, why are they doing that? And I see several reasons. One is that to distract the, uh, the attention of the people in the world from the main issues they're facing. They are developing nuclear bomb and and. The Israel, at least Israel, has said that we won't allow it and we will attack Iran if we see that happening. So that would be number one goal for the Iranian government to distract the attention to decide issues and not pay attention to the, to the main issue. And number two is they want the people of Iran to be distracted. They are so weak. They have no re- re- support from the Iranian people. You saw that. They were on streets protesting the government against the government, and they're suffering uh, the economy. So just, just think, when there is an external threat, people in the country will complain less because we are in the war. Yeah, people, you know, we could be attacked, and your lives are in danger. Uh, that's, uh, that's another reason that's, the Iranian government just causes these troubles 
and uh, every every week. And the number three reason I see is that it's boosting its own, the morale of its own people. Uh, you know, the, the people with Iranian government, it's their own people. They're, they're losing heart. They've seen their own people rising against them. Some of them are ready to jump the ship. They're ready to leave Iran with all these millions and billions of uh, stolen money. So many times the government of Iran say, oh, they attacked us last, you know, two weeks ago, the U.S. attacked Iranian bases in Syria and killed one of the top generals there. So we are not weak. Don't be afraid, they tell themselves to each, their own people. No, don't jump the ship. We are, we are strong. We respond. And so not responding shows their weakness, and they have to respond to attacks of the uh, U.S. and Israel on its bases around the world. Mm, wow. So let me go back to the three points that you made, because I think this is such keen insight on your part. There is no question whatsoever, and you just stated it declaratively. I remember Benjamin Netanyahu speaking before the General Assembly at the U.N., with that graphic of a bomb talking about where Iran was and they would never be allowed to get to. And he drew another line and he said, we will stop them before they can get there. Now, it was a simplistic drawing. A lot of people ridiculed it, but I thought it made the message painly, stark, clear, with stark clarity. He let people know that Iran is on track for nuclear war. And that raises an interesting question. Let me ask if I can quickly before we go to break. You said from the very get-go, Hormuz, that this was a spiritual issue. If Iran wanted to use a nuclear weapon, would it be part of their theology to bring about the Mahdi, their Messiah, for the Islamization of the world? In other words, are they provoking so that eventually they have an excuse to use this weaponry to bring about their eschatology? I'll leave the question there. We'll get an answer from Dr. Hermos Shariat when we return. He is the founder of Iran Alive Ministries. I have a link to their website, Marvelous Ministry, making a change in that great country. Back after this. We're visiting with Dr. Hermo Shariat, who's the founder of Iran Alive Ministries. By the way, it's a perfect day to be talking with Hermos because today is World Hijab Day. And trending on X right now is hashtag Free Iran and the encouragement to stand with brave Iranian women who are removing their hijabs and fighting for their freedom. You may remember that one young woman who took off her hijab was the catalyst for a revolution that was short-lived, but it was impactful nonetheless. So let me go back to the question I asked before, because Iran is fascinating because it really is the intersection between geopolitics and theology. So my question, and I'll state it shortly as a recap, is Iran trying to foment, draw in, whether it's Pakistan, whether it's Iraq, whether it's the U.S. base in Jordan, are they trying to provoke so that they have an excuse to use their nuclear weapons so that they can bring about in their eschatology the return of what they think is their messiah uh, and the Islamis- Islamization of the whole world? Well, it uh, definitely plays a role there. You know, the belief system decides their strategy. And this aligns with the Islamic or Shiite belief that uh, uh, Mahdi, their savior, their messiah, will come back when there is war on earth. And just comparing it to uh, U.S. and Russia, you know, mutual assured destruction, it was preventing uh, these two countries from uh, nuclear weaponry and uh, nuclear war. 
But when you get to Islam, then their uh, theology not only stops them, actually encourages them to get into a nuclear war. Why? Because according to what they believe, those who are killed in that war, if they're Muslims, they will go to heaven. Uh, there was an article by one of the top clergy on, on the website, and uh, they had it for a day and they took it down. And I read it. This top clergy in Iran was saying, when we have nuclear bomb, not if, when we have a nuclear bomb, we should try it on Israel. Because, yes, we're going to kill a couple million of them in, in, in an instant. And, yes, they will retaliate and they will attack us and they kill several million of us. But what a great deal, he said. Six million of them will go to hell and six mm. million of us will go to heaven because we are martyrs. So that theology doesn't stop them from using nuclear weapons when, when they have it, but it actually encourages them. So this danger that Iran has towards Israel, not just Israel, any enemy, any, any power, it is real and it's encouraged by their theology. Yeah. Wow. And that's stunning. And it's important. And one hopes that the decision makers in our government keep that in mind when they're making decisions as well. You have said, not just in this most recent article, but you've been saying it frequently, that very likely in 2024, Iran will go through a war. Tell me why. Uh, Iran doesn't want to go through, through a war. They are testing the waters. They are, uh, they are testing Biden administration to see how far they are going. They're boasting, they're threatening, but in reality, I don't see that they really want to get into a war because they know they're going to lose that war, number one. Number two, they know their own people are not going to support them. They may lose the, not only the war outside, they may lose the war inside. The people will do an uprising on top of the government. So even though on the outside they're talking about war, they're testing the waters, in reality, they're scared. They don't want to get into a war. They know it's a lose-lose situation. So don't believe everything that the uh, Iranian government says. Some of it is correct. Some of them is boasting and deception. You know, in Islam, you can lie for the cause of Islam, and there are great liars in Iran. Mm -hmm. You point out in your article that when crisis happens in Iran, we shouldn't be shocked. But in fact, it kind of opens the door of opportunity. Talk to us about that. Yes, uh, I have been, you know, we have a 24-7 satellite broadcast. We have a church. We deliver church into millions of homes in Iran through our satellite channel. So I've been preaching the last month because I felt there is hard times coming to Iran, uh, a war maybe, an earthquake. And my approach has been, when it happens, don't be shocked. I'm telling the people of Iran, especially Christians, there's going to be challenges. There's going to be crises. But as a Christian, when it happens, I'm preparing you. Be ready. Don't shy back. Don't stand back. Don't go hide in your homes. When crisis comes, there are going to be great opportunities for the gospel. I'm preparing the army of the Lord, the Iranian Christians. They are underground, yes, but they are being equipped. They are being ready if something or like a war happens they're going to be a light in the darkness. They're going to go out. They're going to help the people. And many, many more will come to Christ and the church will grow. If there is a war in Iran, the church in Iran will grow. Hmm. Wow. 
So lastly, why, and I ask you this every time, but I want people to catch the vision that you have for Iran as well. Why do you think, especially through your ministry, and as I noted earlier, broadcasting just 24-7, and that's the Lord, by the way. When you go into a country that has theocrats that are running it, it's only God that allows that message to go in. And the government knows, by the way, about Iran Alive Ministries, and yet the message is still allowed to continue. Give me an update on the ministry itself. Are people still responding? And is your sense still that many are hearing the gospel and it really answers that hole that's in their heart? It's an amazing open heaven in Iran. Mm. This is a history in the making in Iran. And we Christians have to wake up and take advantage of a historical time. A nation, an Islamic nation is open to Christ. What are we doing? Let's work together to take advantage of that. And Iran will be a Christian nation sooner or later. Not I saying that. The Lord is saying that in Jeremiah 49, 38. Mark my word. Iran will be a Christian nation. Actually, don't mark my word. Mark your Bible. Jeremiah 49, 38. Iran will be a Christian nation. Yes. That's why, Hormoz, I love talking to you. I love the way you understand the world as it is, but you open the door for the gospel and you encourage us to join you in your work. Thank you so much for all you do. Back after this. When we tackle tough issues on In the Market, do you find yourself nodding in agreement? Then why not take the next step today and become a partial partner? Your monthly gift will help to keep us on the air, and you'll receive exclusive behind-the-scenes resources directly from me, like a transcript of my weekly commentary, an exclusive weekly audio briefing, and more. Become one of our partial partners today by calling 877-JANET-58 or go online to In the Market with JanetPartial.org. You know, the idea of national sovereignty is actually a biblical issue. So when a non-elected governmental entity begins to chip away at American sovereignty, you and I, as followers of Christ, should be paying attention because this is a big issue. Well, let me tell you, the Family Research Council is paying attention, particularly Dr. Chris Gasek, who's paying attention. He is the Senior Fellow for Regulatory Affairs at FRC. And I want to tell you something about his background. He is, in a word, brilliant. He got a Bachelor of Science in Economics from Wharton. That's a brilliant school, by the way, University of Pennsylvania. He got a master's and a Ph.D. in political science from Stanford University. And as if having a Ph.D. and being a doctorate wasn't enough, he then got a Juris Doctorate and got his law degree from UVA, the University of Virginia School of Law. He has worked for the Heritage Foundation, the American Enterprise Institute, the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, the Federal Communications Commission, and a subcommittee of the Senate Homeland Security and Government Affairs Committee. But I have to tell you in full disclosure, what I love particularly about Chris is that when my daughter was working at the Family Research Council, she just loved working with Chris. She was inspired by him. She counted him a dear friend, and she was always encouraged by him. So I am thrilled that you, my listening audience, get a chance to meet Chris as well, because Chris just did something important. He authored some comments that were filed to the Department of Health and Human Services concerning the World Health Organization's Pandemic Preparedness Agreement. I bet you didn't know about that, but Chris does, and he's going to break it down for us. Chris, the warmest of welcomes. I'm thrilled you're here. And let's just start with the WHO and their Pandemic Preparedness Agreement. What is it and what does it say, and why should we be concerned? Well, let me just uh, – well, well, thank you very much for the very kind introduction, and I'll uh, I just uh, – 
Well, I love all of the, the members of the partial family, so you're all wonderful people. And uh, and, uh, and Sarah is also just a, a magnificent person who's always an, an inspiration to me oh, as you. well. So <laughs> um, I mean, what I would say is that right now uh, the, the World Health Organization is attempting to accrue or uh, how would you put this, you know, aggrandize power over a lot of uh, issues relating to health, but, but even more than that, about economic and uh, social and communications issues. And they're doing it under the pretext of, I mean, this is, we saw this with, with the COVID pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. That the pretext is, you know, health emergencies, right? They think they can stampede people into anything if there's a health emergency and they can, and, you know, I mean, it seems like they had a lot of success, but I think people have learned a lot. But anyway, so there are two tracks that are going on right now in this, this effort to increase the, the power of the, the World Health Organization at the expense of all sovereign nations in the world. And uh, there are a lot of people and organizations behind this, special, you know, not just the WHO, but organizations like the Gates Foundation and uh, other trusts and a lot of NGOs, the, um, you know, the World Economic Forum and these sorts of people have influences. They, a lot of them, uh, like the Gates Foundation, by direct contributions to the budget um, of the, the World Health Organization, I mean, to the tunes of hundreds of millions of dollars. So it's... At the same time that the Gates Foundation and and Bill Gates have intellectual property uh, rights and vaccines and things like this, it's it's extremely, you know, it's 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 very challenging to sort of think that this is an upright, um, you know, health-seeking organization. And then Mm -hmm. the WHO itself is deeply influenced by China within the organizational structure of the, you know, it's it's sort of China has decided to exercise a lot of control over the WHO. So going back, so there are two tracks. They're, at the same time that they're, uh, they have this overall goal, one of the things that they're doing is, like all bureaucracies, they have a set of regulations and, and how they operate and the sorts of just the way the, um, the WHO operates. And some of these even predate the, the WHO. The WHO was created in 1946. It's sort of the, it was the first specialized agency that was created by the United Nations, you know, uh, the nations, the United Nations came out of World War II and was created in 1945. So WHO is the first of these kind of specialized, you know, kind of topical agencies. And there's another one like UNESCO. You know, there are other ones, right, And that we've all heard about. Um, so this is called the International Health Regulations, or, and there are, there are amendments to it. So this is sort of chugging along. It's, it's extremely esoteric, and it has to do with how the, the rules, like, you know, when the director of the, of the WHO can, just, you know, declare a, an international medical emergency and what the implications of that are. But this is all being negotiated um, in largely in secret, and it's going on on one track. Another track is they have this um, pandemic pre- preparedness agreement, and that's you know it's a, it's basically a treaty, and that's what uh, they um, HHS the, the the federal agency uh, published the document or published access to it, and then asked for comments on the window closed for that uh, on January twenty second. Hmm. Um, so. The thing that was interesting to us was that we felt it was a po- you know really important to go in and comment about this document, which is a sweeping document. When I one a sentence that I have in there in, in, in our comment and family research's comment is that this is really more of a political manifesto than it is any kind of a document about mm-hmm. health. And um, 
So just keeping that in mind, what's, what we decided to do was to make a statement. And I think the most, to me, almost the most important thing the comment does is it's sort of at the, the first third of it is to set out the worldview of the Family Research Council in, contrast, you know, in, in, in distinction with the worldview of the World Health Organization and this sort of this kind of technocratic um, you know, secular or, you know, anti-human, anti-religious elite. And so we talk about the cornerstone being that uh, human beings, that man is made in the image of God and his likeness, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and and so from that flow, a lot of, you know, a lot of principles, but one of the things that we stressed was that we believe that the that pandemics can be best uh, tackled or defeated by decentralized access to information, widespread, you know, availability of scientific expertise, uh, you know, sort of subsidiarity taken, you know, as, as we, uh, you know, as we've come to understand it. In other words, the idea that um, working through various structures of authority, but working down to the lowest levels and, and getting the most input from people is a much more, it's, it's, it's kind of parallels the market, but it's it's how you process the most information in the best manner. Um, the system being sort of, if you look at this this uh, proposed agreement, is is a totally top down agreement, mm-hmm. and and it, it envisages the creation toward the end of the articles twenty one through twenty four of a entirely new bureaucracy, some massive thing that has all it's like a sort of another world health organization underneath the world health health organization with its own secretariat in order to enforce this agreement right mm, wow. and yeah i mean this is really shocking i mean when you it was bad enough when i was just reading the principles involved in this thing and then i get to this and there's this uh uh th- these whole sets of provisions that are about creating this another governmental structure to to kind of police and oversee this thing and one of the reasons why I think, you know, it's not surprising that they did this is that when you look at the scope of the document, <laughs> it covers every aspect of, you know, science, information, intellectual property, um, supply chains. Uh, and one of the things I was just uh, looking at a, one of the principles, uh, it's, you know, they sort of talk about key terms in the document, right? And in uh, Article 3, it's uh, Paragraph 3. The term that they use is equity, right? And you think, oh, okay, this is interesting. So it says equity is at the center of pandemic prevention, preparedness, and response, both at the national level uh, within states and at the international level between states. It turns out that, you know, one of the diversity, equity, inclusion, right, is equity is one of these Marxist, neo-Marxist buzzwords, right? And basically it means redistribution, right? It's kind of socialism. So, you know, we kind of look at these things and we don't sort of plug into this. But this document has a lot of, you know, one of the things about uh, UN speak and who speak and sustainable development speak is that you have to know all the gobbledygook, right? Mm -hmm. And it's, it's, it's... it's very challenging because a lot of these terms will have a sort of normal meeting, right? But they play on the sort of normal meeting, and then they sort of, you know, take it to the level, to the meaning that they want. So equity, and you know, when you do, one of the nice things about, you know, modern research is you have a PDF document, and you can just search for terms in it, right? Um, and and uh, equity appears like 35 times in the document, right? So it's... <laughs> It, it, it suffuses this thing, which the document itself is about 30 pages. So, you know, 
and the, the idea and, and the the who is WHO is saying that the document or the you know the agreement if it went into effect wouldn't encroach on sovereignty. But what's interesting is um, you know in in the legal I, I didn't mean to. <laughs> keep going here and not let you take a breath or take a breath and if, if you wanted me to ask me something. So I just, I'm just sort of, you know, thinking about things and I'm, I'm sorry, I'm just kind of machine gunning everybody. No, it's, it's such, it's such important information. So let me just pull out a couple of things. Number one, uh, I want to go to the question. You're a lawyer, you know, the power of words treaty. So if there's a treaty involved, this is where, thank goodness, the thinking of our founding father said, you know, this is how we're going to do it. Before the U.S. signs on to a treaty, this is going to have to pass through accountability to the American people vis-a-vis the U.S. Senate. Now, I've heard that the Biden administration simply is going to change the idea. And you're going to hear the music, Chris. So let me get an answer on the other side. But all the Biden information uh, administration has to do is no longer refer to it as a treaty. Call it something else. It bypasses accountability through the Senate, where we would hope that cooler minds would say this is ceding national sovereignty. Thanks, but we're not interested in that. And it would stop them in their tracks. So tell me what we're doing to make sure that this doesn't get renamed that it's not going to be a zebra instead of a horse because we're just going to change the name of treaty. And the second thing is to, I want to hear your thoughts about why national sovereignty is so important. This is a non-elected international agency that wants a power grab. And we have too many in our administration that are willing to cooperate. Let me get your thoughts when we return. We're visiting with Dr. Chris Gasek, who's the Senior Fellow for Regulatory Affairs at the Family Research Council. He is also the author of the public comments that the Family Research Council filed with our Department of Health and Human Services concerning WHO's Pandemic Preparedness Agreement. And as Chris points out, this agreement has the potential to seriously undermine American national sovereignty, free speech, and human dignity among a myriad of other troubling aspects to this. Remember, these are unelected officials that are trying to centralize government. Uh, We have a system of checks and balances. We take good care of ourselves, thanks very much. And I would imagine, from whose perspective, handling a pandemic in sub-Saharan Africa might be different than handling it in the West Coast of the United States. Who is this centralized entity to tell us how to handle our pandemic? We can do that by ourselves. Thank you. But I want to go to the power of language. We know this, Chris, being in D.C., that language is everything. And so if you no longer call this a treaty, it gives the administration the opportunity to sidestep the U.S. Senate and have us become a signatory, worse yet, a participant in this idea with this pandemic preparedness agreement. How can we make sure that this remains being identified as a treaty, which then requires the involvement of the U.S. Senate? Well, let me just say, yeah, I think that you've identified a critical facet of what's going on here. And I think it's a a place where all of your listeners can really have an impact in doing something very simple. And and let me just say what that is. you know, the, the, you have these agreements and this uh, this international health regulation thing, the pandemic agreement, there are all these details. I don't think you have to, if you call your representative or, you know, member of the House of Representatives, or really, in, in this case, it would be the, the Senate, because the Senate gives advice and consent. But it wouldn't be a bad idea to let everybody in, in the Congress know what you think about this on both sides of, mm-hmm. uh, of the, you know, House-Senate divide. But I would say, you know, just contact them and say, look, I don't want any agreement to take place that has any effect of uh, diminishing the sovereignty of the United States or reducing our, um, you know, 
ability to you know operate freely as a nation. Now they'll, of course, you know Biden and these people will say, well, they're they're not diminishing sovereignty, but I think he sort of laid down the marker. But but along these lines, here's the point that I would make: whatever the doctrine, you know, there are these various legal doctrines about whether an agreement doesn't have to go to this, the Senate for advice and consent or whether – I think essentially it boils down to, you know, if the, if the, if the Senate or if, if the, you know, the Congress had given the president an authorization to negotiate a specific deal like, you know, a trade agreement on lumber with Canada, right, you know, or something like this, that might not have to go back before the – uh, the Senate, or you know, something very specific, and there was a grant of authority, or or it was clearly, you know, it's not a, it's a, not a major, a, a major thing. It's within the purview of, you know, like the postal regulations or something, right? Yeah, I mean, these things, there are these sorts of things, and we do have agreements like these, and they're 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 not a, a huge deal. However, the scope of both of these, the the the, the health regulations and the treaty, first mm-hmm. of all, it is so massive that there is no conceivable way uh, that. That this wouldn't have, you know, entailed a a direct grant of a negotiating um, authority from the the Congress to the the president, and I can't even imagine with with this kind of a document that it wouldn't have required that they come back and get it get it ratified, right? Yeah. And so my point then is to tell them on, on both sides of this, right? Whatever agreement comes out of it has to be brought before the Senate for advice and consent, and that way you don't you don't have to get into the details. You don't have to get into all this stuff. Just say that's what you want. You want, you know, the Senate to have the ability to to examine this document publicly, to debate it, to have hearings about it, and then to have a vote uh requiring two thirds plus one to give the advice and consent of the Senate uh, in order for this to become the law. Mm-hmm. And I think that this is one of the things about whether whether you call something an agreement or a treaty, you can manipulate this. What's really important is that is sort of the scope of this thing. And um, I mean, I think if you're any honest person would call both of these things treaties, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and, and so we have to kind of operate on that principle. But the, the Biden administration is all in on this. They, they are in, you know, they and the sort of this, this, you know, the left and the globalist cabal. And, and I mean, it, there is this effort to try and diminish uh, the sovereignty of nation states. And and the, the nation state that really matters in the system and can kind of mess up their plans is the United States. So you have to do everything you possibly can to undermine the integrity of the political system and the, the, the society and the structures of the United States. And we see this playing out right now, you know, basically an open border, right, that's allowing millions and millions of people to come through. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, you know, destroying the military. Uh, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. just think of all of every facet, you know, destroying the, uh, the, the, the debt posture or the balance sheet of the United States. I mean, total destruction. I mean, it's not just sort of old style liberalism where you have sort of, you know, different kinds of policies. Now, this is just nihilistic destruction that's that's going on because Mm -hmm. because these people are Marxists. I mean, you know, I don't know what Biden is. I don't even know if he's all there. But the point is, the people under him really are. And so this is what you have to, you know, tell your Republican uh, represented. Well, not even your. I mean, every one of them, even the Democrats, make sure they know. Because if you're in a, you know, in a state like uh, Virginia, um, and you have two Democratic senators, you know, they need to know that you feel this way. But it doesn't. Whatever state you're in, there are a lot of people who feel this way, and they need to know that you are aware of what's going on, and um, that this is not. This is not okay. I agree. I agree. By the way, I want to tell my friends, Chris, that I've put your 10-page comment 
that you authored on our website so that people can read it in its entirety. That'll be a backgrounder before you make that call to your representative. But remember, it's mm-hmm. the will of the people that becomes the law of the land. And I want to read one thing you wrote because it made me stop and think, just imagine what it would be like in public discourse if no Christian witness were brought to bear in the marketplace of ideas. So Chris wrote this, the most important check on political, intellectual, scientific, and medical tyranny is having the ability to seek the truth and disseminate one's understanding of scientific fact without fear of punishment. And remember, this went to HHS, comments about the WHO. So to the federal government, these words are under their nose. As Christians, we seek to learn, understand, and proclaim the truth of the Lordship of Jesus Christ. For many of those who founded the American Republic, that same desire lay at the core of the need for the enactment of the First Amendment of the Constitution, which guarantees Americans the right to worship freely, to express and promulgate those beliefs, to make arguments, to assert facts and theories, and to engage in all manners of debate. Not only is that a stellar statement in and of itself, but it gets dropped contextually into the European Union's desire now to control, quote, disinformation, pointing to the pandemic, the World Health Organization that doesn't want theories put out there on social platforms that stand in opposition to their agenda. So that's why FRC brilliantly, through the work of Dr. Chris Gasick, reminded our federal government, wait, we have the right of discourse here. We have the right to express our beliefs. So you've got your marching orders. You've got your homework. Go to the information page on In the Market with JanetParshall.org. Click on the red box. It says program details and audio. It will take you to the information page. There's a beautiful bio for Chris. There's a link to FRC underneath, but on the right-hand side, there's the comments that Chris authored, filed on behalf of the Family Research Council. Chris, blessings to you always. Thanks, friends. I'll see you next time.